Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Oh, welcome to the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami. I'm always joined by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Today, we're also joined by Rebecca Patterson. She's the former chief investment strategist at the famed Bridgewater Associates. We're going to talk a little GDP. We're going to talk some earnings, some of the things they're looking forward to, and some of the things that we find a little odd. And of course, Danny will grace us with some NFL picks. He's doing well this year. Fellas, in 1979... (laughs) That was the year that I was coming up with, just a different version. It was 1979. Anyway, go ahead, guy. The great Elvis Costello released Armed Forces. And driving into the city today, I heard a song that is so apropos, Danny. And the song, of course, is Accidents Will Happen. And if you think about it, that's exactly what's going on right before our very eyes. We're seeing accidents happening not only in our markets, Danny, but overseas markets and commodity markets obviously in some currency markets as well, things that we've been talking about. And although, as Elvis said, they're only hit and run, these have major ramifications for all the things that we look at on a day-to-day basis. So, Danny, I know accidents will happen, but what are your thoughts on that? Cars are starting to drive on the wrong side of the road, put it that way. I think the accidents are in front of us. You can see them occurring. Just use FSD for Tesla if you want that to happen, but we'll talk about that later. But one thing before we get to that, I want to congratulate one of the greatest personnel trades, not in sports history, in Wall Street history has occurred. And that would be James Gorman officially handing over, you know, the reins in January of being CEO of the company. And this is one of the greatest trades. You think about this. Gorman comes into Morgan Stanley in 2006. He was kind of a private client guy at Merrill Lynch, came in, really built up Morgan Stanley over a period of time. But think about when he became CEO in early 2010, Right. Give me the Fed, give me QE, give me TARP, give me, give me all these things step in. And it's not lost on me of him stepping out. He didn't need to go yet. You know, he had a nice run. So I think it, within all of that guy, I think Gorman sees the accidents which are happening. And why would he want to have the reins, right? So good luck to Ted Pick, I think, who, who is taking this over, who ran equities and fixed income and so forth. So I wanted to get that out of the way first. But guy, you bring up a point that things are percolating. The ECB today basically said, we're done. And they're going to keep reinvesting, by the way, the runoff. So people thought they were going to stop. They're not going to stop there. They have stagflation. They admitted as much slowing economy, rising inflation, but they see the economy slowing there. Fast forward to the meeting next week for the Bank of Japan. It's going to be occurring. We're now through 150 on the end as we sit here today, right? And I believe that's going to cascade even farther. What are they going to do? And then what are we going to do, right? I know we're not raising rates anytime soon, but I want to say one last thing, and this I've talked about this with our central bank. I've talked about this with the ECB. For some reason, these two central banks believe that quantitative tightening is the equivalent to a quarter point of tightening on, on the quote, our Fed funds or their funds, so to speak. I don't think they realize that the front running that occurred two years ago when they laid this game out, right, about mortgage-backed securities, treasuries, and so forth. We are, again, competing, well, I'll talk about us for a second, competing with all this issuance from the Treasury, and now you're competing with the Fed selling, they're way off on that. So I believe the tightening impact of the longer to the curve in both continents is having an impact. So 
yes, guy, accidents occurring all over. The place. Well, it's earnings season right now, and accidents seem to be uh, occurring on a, a single stock basis uh, all over the place, too. It, it really feels like a little bit of a minefield right now. You know, when I think about some of the moves that we've seen this week alone, Alphabet being down, you know, 10% in a straight line after a quarter, and Guide that really didn't seem that bad to me after the close today. We're recording this Thursday. We're going to have Amazon. That is sure to be a volatile one. That stock is down 15% or so just in the last kind of month and a half and down today in sympathy with Facebook and Alphabet yesterday, Microsoft down, giving back all of its gains yesterday. If that was the perceived winner of the Magnificent Seven in the earnings season, if you will, not particularly great price action there. So I look around and it's not just tech guys. I mean, like look at MasterCard down 5%. Look at UPS down 5% after its earnings. Look at the knock-on effects from what Meta had to say with their CapEx guidance. Arista Networks is down, you know, 8.5%. They get 26% of their revenue from Meta, right? NVIDIA getting tagged 7% in two days, right? Is there less confidence that this addressable market guy for all of these GPUs for training all these generative AI models? Is that kind of fever broken a little bit? You mentioned earlier today, I think NVIDIA dipped below 400 for the first time in three months. It was trading, I guess, you know, above 500 when they reported their last quarter. So that thing is in correction mode. That thing could fill in that gap from May and be down 35% and still be up more than 100% on the year. So the fever seems to be breaking in a lot of these much-loved stories. I'll mention Tesla here also. Flirting with that $200 level, I really feel like once it gets below that, we're probably on our way back towards those April lows. So if you think about the stuff that's been kind of holding the stock market up with an S&P up 8% and the NASDAQ up 30%, it really is in the hands of 10 stocks that have corrected. This is really important. All those stocks are down at least 10%. But when I think about Apple up 30% on the year, NVIDIA up 200% on the year, Google up 40% on the year, Amazon up 40% on the year, Microsoft up 40% on the year, Tesla up 69%, haha, on the year, I say to myself, if those things join the party, that's going to feel a lot like what happened in late 21 into 2022. So there's my rant here a little bit, people, but it really feels like we're on the precipice for something. Last, I'll just leave it at this. The NASDAQ 100, it got back to this level here. It's approaching a technical level, in my opinion, the 200-day moving average and a breakout level. Could we see a bounce here? Sure. But then next week, we got the big kahuna and we got Apple and there's everything wrapped up into that one, in my opinion, most importantly, China. And that one really could determine, I think, the path of equities from now until the year end. Who is the incremental buyer of equities? We were sitting here four, six weeks ago, like who's left to really buy these things? And I would argue that, yes, the news isn't great from some of these companies, but I think the price action is making the news, meaning they can come up with something positive or something negative. Just a quarter ago, I felt like we had the same type of news, but the markets were seeing through that thinking, oh, it's temporary. Things will be fine. I think we've reached a new point here. And there's no incremental buyer of bonds. feels like there's no incremental buyer of stocks here. So this is we're going into this period right now where I think, again, it's going to remain volatile. I think you can still own the very good companies. You buy them on weakness if you think the fundamentals are intact. So do your work. But in a passive market that has grown in all this ETF money flows, which have been occurring for years and years, everything goes kind of together, but herein lies the opportunity. And I'll make one comment on Tesla. Stocks, I think, still over $200 as we sit here. Forget that it's $750 billion, whatever the market cap might be at this point. If you feel like to yourself, oh, I can't believe I missed the sell-off in this market. Oh, I wish. Guess what? That still has to be the one that has to sell off the most. Of the magnificent six, which there's six left, and now there's Tesla, which is was the seventh one, which is gone, right? Of the one, it is the most egregious of them all. It is the one, and I'll comment on the quarter that came out of Mercedes today in Europe. They made a comment about the EV pricing business without saying they said Tesla's killing everybody by undercutting pricing so much that it's hurting our margins because they're old school auto. That's like, that's not how you do business. They've committed to have 50% of their fleet by 2025 to electric. They're not going to take their foot off the battery gas, I, I, I would say, in that regard. So competition is here and it's not sustainable for Tesla to keep prices this low to try to keep market share. There, Guy, I ran. No, listen, it's it's been fascinating to watch over the last couple of weeks, specifically the Microsoft quarter and the knee-jerk reaction after they reported and then the subsequent move lower in the stock. Dan, you talked about NVIDIA. Remember, NVIDIA was a stock post-earnings and their off-cycle, as Dan has mentioned a few times, they report in December. But when they reported, the stock, I think, closed around 480. It was trading 516 
in the aftermarket. And there was so much euphoria around the name. At one point earlier today, and we do this on Thursdays, that stock was sub 400. That's a pretty dramatic drop. Now, I'm not picking on NVIDIA. NVIDIA is an extraordinarily important company. What we've tried to point out for quite some time is it's being more than rewarded in terms of valuation. And if something were to change, I think it's going to be, you're going to be shocked at how quickly that stock reverses course. I happen to think out of all the ones we name, understanding that Apple is out there, NVIDIA sort of holds the key in a lot of ways, because if that fever breaks in terms of the euphoria around that name, that could be really a huge drag on the market. I will say this on the positive side of things. We haven't seen deterioration in credit yet. As a matter of fact, over the last couple of days, the HYG, which is something we point out, it's actually traded okay. That gives me some sort of hope. But I will tell you, when good news now in terms of stocks is interpreted as news to sell on vis-a-vis uh, Meta, vis-a-vis Microsoft. That has to be concerning, Dan. Yeah, and listen, you know, we're, we're very focused on these mega cap tech stocks, and, and rightfully so, given their contribution to S and P 500 earnings and their weight in, in the market cap weighted indices. But you know, and, and we've been highlighting all year long. I mean, one of the reasons when you guys were tagging us on perma bears and this and that, whatever, we're telling you, look at how industrials act, look at how transports act, look at how financials act, look at how retail acts. I mean, the list went on and on. Look at how staples acted. Look at how utilities acted, right? It was just tech people. That was it. And it was infected with an investment virus uh, that was in both public and, and, and private markets in and around AI. And as the bloom comes off the rose a little bit, we are not technologists. We're not telling you that there's a technology that won't transform almost every industry the way people were talking about the internet in the late 90s. It's probably doing that. But a lot of those companies went away. A lot of those bigger companies that accrued a lot of the public market market value in the bubble, they lost all of it, right? At some point, as far as the excess is concerned. So might we see that in some of those big names? That's what I think is likely to happen. I don't mean that these stocks are going to get cut in half or this or whatever, but they could easily go down 30%. Now, the other thing I just wanted to bring up here, and I think this is kind of interesting in a way, is like, you know, we had this great conversation with Rebecca Patterson, so stick around for that. One of the last things we talked about is like, okay, maybe there are no disasters lurking in the money center banks. And, you know, they have not traded particularly particularly well, right, since their Q3 earnings a couple weeks ago. But on a day like today, with yields in a little bit, they're acting a little better. The regional banks are acting a little better. There were some results out of some of the regionals. So that's good. But what about some of these non-bank financials? You know, some of the Blackstones and the Apollos and the KKRs and the Carlisles, those are correcting right now. And so, Guy, you just brought up high yield. You brought up the HYG. We've been talking about what the knock-on effects are for commercial real estate and the like, Danny. And, and I just wonder here if, again, and I think, you know, Rebecca, like kind of alluded to this. One of the problems that we could see could be in one of these non-bank sort of lenders. So I think it makes sense to keep an eye on how investors are thinking about those stocks in particular, because they could kind of hold one of the keys to basically the equity outlook, in my opinion. If you were looking at U.S. financials, as it relates to banks all this year and basically saying that's not good for the economy and that's not going to be good for the stock market when the rubber hits the road, this group could be an interesting one to keep an eye on as we come to the other side of higher for longer. Especially the markings that they're taking in their book, the lack of IPOs, the lack of M&A. And she's going to obviously talk about kind of what we talk about in energy. There are stocks to own. There's a lot of M&A going on in energy. Since we had our podcast last week, there's another large one that was out there. I know we talked about it a little bit on Market Call this week, but you know what hasn't been mentioned this week is the Fed. And we kept talking about the Fed is now a sideshow. You've really heard of anything. Yes, they're in a quiet period. That's why we haven't heard from them. They have a meeting next week, but I, I think that's now in the backdrop here. And I think that's really important to note. And UAW, United Auto Workers, finally settled with Ford. And I mention this because what are they getting? And good good for the workers. They're getting a 25% pay increase over the next four years and some other benefits. Guess what? That's into a slowing economy. So yes, Ford finally came to the table and did it. These are the type of things I think people are seeing. And then the big elephant is when you think about your underwriting stocks, imagine if the United States was a stock and you had to evaluate it and you looked at its balance sheet. And I think that this persistent overhang, which is not going away, there's a treasury auction literally every day. Some are better than others. I think the seven-year one was a little bit better today because rates have blown out so far. But is the signal of lower rates on the long end, is that a signal to go buy stocks or is that a signal to apply to safety. That to me is the area, obviously, that's going to be the most volatile. Yes, equities will, 
But I think every system in quant is trying to use treasuries as an input to decide whether or not to buy or, stock, buy or sell stocks. And I think it's deeper than that guy. I agree with you 100%. I mean, there's a school of thought that if rates were, the only thing we need to happen is for 10-year yields to go back down. If 10-year yields go lower, everything's going to be okay. Equity prices will rally. The Fed has our back. And that's a very one-dimensional, I think, sort of very elementary way to look at things. And I don't agree with that line of reasoning. And I said a number of times, rates going lower actually could be on the back of an equity sell-off that nobody really expects out there. So we'll see how that plays out. A lot of people this week were obviously talking about Bill Ackman, who I think in early August put out a note that he was short the bond market. In other words, he thought yields were going to go higher. And I will tell you, in the subsequent few days after that release, yields actually went dramatically lower, only then to start to rally again. Well, earlier this week, he announced that he was out of his bond short. And I think, Dan, a lot of people interpreted that as him saying, the move in yields is done. I'm going to take my ball and go away with it. I don't think he necessarily believes that. And I don't have, I'm not privy to anything that he thinks. But what I think happened is he looked at the landscape and said, there are a number of things that can go wrong here in terms of my position. Geopolitical risk could be such that there's going to be a flight to safety in the form of the bond market makes yields go lower. That would be detrimental to my position. And or we're going to start to see a dramatic drop in economic activity, which theoretically should make yields go lower. And I think he was just playing the odds. But I'm here to tell you, I don't think the move higher in yields is over by any stretch of imagination. And I don't think that's particularly bullish for equities. Yeah, but I, I think, Guy, you've been very nuanced about this and, and you've given us a lot of great reasons over the course of the last three to six months of why yields were going to go to 4% and then 5%. So kudos to you on that. When I think about Ackman's trade, Ackman probably plays tennis with Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon, nine months ago, was saying, be prepared for yields to go to 4% or 5%, right? And then a couple months ago over the summer, they probably bumped into each other, you know, at Shinnecock in the Hamptons. And he probably said, be prepared for them to go to five, six, seven percent. And sooner or later, when that becomes consensus, guy like Ackman, I, I don't know what he's short, but he was basically probably levered up using lots of over-the-counter like derivatives and stuff like that. And sooner or later, you just you get to your price, man. You know what I mean? And maybe that price was a nice round number of five percent. But when you think about how he's expressing that view, most likely, or how his firm is, they probably made multiples that the percentage in which, right, yields went up. So like you think about it, it's probably just good risk management. He probably has a great finger on the pulse as it relates to market sentiment. And there's probably a pretty decent reload level guy. When I talk about your nuance, but you've also been saying, how do yields go down? Flight to quality. Could that be a geopolitical event? Could it be something that rocks our economy here? And so those are the sorts of things that we try to navigate, I guess, on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis. But it is important when he is as public as he is about the positioning that he has, when he turns course, you know what I mean? Like, you want to pay attention. Danny, speaking about price, by the way, you have mentioned a number of times at 150, and we're going to talk to Rebecca about this for sure, but I want your thoughts on dollar yen because 150 is a line in the sand. That line in the sand has been violated. JGBs went out to almost 90 basis points, levels we haven't seen in quite some time. That experiment that worked so well for so long is seemingly unraveling. And people again will say, I don't care about Japan guy, Danny Dan. Why do you keep bringing it up? Because what's happening there is having huge ramifications here, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. So 150, we've talked about. Here we are. Thoughts on that? It, it's like the Muppets with the beaker and the Swedish professor running around in the lab. I mean, that's honestly how it feels like what these global central banks are doing. And it's important because of what you just mentioned. Forget about whether it's 150 or 155 for the end and what that means to the Japanese economy and all that. It's important because it would mean that the central banks have lost control of their ability to kind of manipulate the system. And JGBs are going to 1% here, for sure. I mean, we're at 0.88. They intervened for the fifth time. So the meeting's on Halloween next week. We'll see what they're going to say. They're going to try to jawbone they jawbone for six weeks to try to keep this yen below 150. It weakened kind of through that. But there's something else here that I want to mention, and that is the U.S. GDP number. I think it's safe to say, and Visa, by the way, confirmed in their quarter how strong consumer spending was on services and so forth. That's a high number. A lot of it was on services, obviously. I think we can safe to say that's going to be the highest number that we're going to see for quite some time. But I want to hammer one point home again. I just want people to try to understand something because one of you made a comment about kind of credit still okay in the market. It's getting worse. It has one direction to go. We had basically zero rates since 2009. I want to say this again. 
We had TALF come in. What was TALF? TALF was to rescue all the securitizations that were out, all the things we artificially kept low. This readjustment to a higher rate environment on the consumer and on the corporate side, we are in the second inning of this. I want to just be clear that the problem I have right now is the normalization of this stuff, the lag impact, call it whatever you want, right? It's here. And so for the rest of this year, and I think into the first quarter next year, from a comparable basis, things are going to feel and look really bad. And I just want to make that clear that, that that's going to be the shift. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. And guys like Jamie Dimon know this and they've talked and they'll be fine, JP Morgan, they'll be fine. But people, please, this is not a blip here. This is a secular shift back. And what will the Fed do? I have no doubt that the Fed Treasury will try to do something if things get crazy. What can they do? They'll do a form of TALF. Go look it up right now on Investopedia. Just go look. Trust me, that's corporate bonds. What can they do? It's an election year next year. So sorry to rant. I just don't think People understand what's happening in some of these subprime auto companies in the non-banked areas Dan talked about before. Look at Affirm. Look at Upstart. We told you, and I've been hammering this. Look at these stocks. They are getting drilled now. Why? Because they're non-bank financials. They are now portfolioing loans, and these companies were never set up to do that. So careful out there. Peter. Yeah, no. And, and the last point about the careful out there, it's Thursday into the close here. And, you know, the S&P is down about 1%. The NASDAQ is down a little less than 2%. But I'm looking at Apple down, you know, 2.5%. It was down 3%. On no headline, people, okay? So this stock is trading, you know, at levels it has not traded in three months. It's below its 200-day moving average for the first time since March. Microsoft, which I just mentioned, is down 3.5%, giving back everything and more than it gained the day after its supposed beat and raise sort of quarter. And when you have the two largest equities trade that way on no news, just on sentiment, what is that telling you? That people have sold all the crap. Because I have so many stocks on my facts set on my front page that have literally fallen off in the chart, the bottom right, meaning like they are at 52-week lows. So we talked about all the devastation that we've seen in the sectors. We've talked about all of the sectors that are down other than tech and consumer discretionary, right? And so I say to myself, what's left to join the party? It's these really crowded, deemed safety trades, right? And so that's why the Apple next week is really important. And I want to make one last point because I've heard this a bunch over the last few months. It wasn't just the crowding into these mega cap tech stocks because of AI. We've also seen this in Eli Lilly and Nova Nordisk because of these GLP-1s, these weight loss drugs. And combined, they have a trillion dollars in market cap. They've all doubled, all right, the two of them, okay? This is also a very crowded trade on a mega trend. And I'm putting air quotes up here, people, because that's the thing that tech growth investors like to invest in, and they don't care about valuation. And Guy, you've highlighted the fact that Eli Lilly is trading at a valuation for for a half a trillion dollar market cap that probably no pharma stock has ever traded at. So the only point that I want to make here is that it's crowded. People are convinced that this is a wonder drug and that it's going to be a $150 billion drug by 2030 or something like that. This has the potential to come unwound in the stock market. I don't mean the products. So I just want to bring that up is I feel like we're getting to that phase where some of these very crowded trades, despite how bullish you are on the long-term trends that these companies are levered towards, they could go down a lot more. As the great Paul McCartney said, I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. But before we go, Danny Moses, we have reached week eight in the league where they play for pay. I believe I was wrong in terms of your record last week, but I think you come into this week a robust 12 and nine. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct. I also want to decide that it was Professor Bunsen Honeydew along with Beaker. And that came out, I believe, in 1977, guys. So the lab experiment that was going on. All right. So I should have just done this to yours last week because that was kind of my pick of the year. But I have three picks this week. One is a conspiracy pick. I'll start with that. If you saw the end of the Cleveland Colts game last week, you saw the two horrible calls that led Cleveland to win, the two defensive penalty calls on the Colts. The Colts are now getting a point at home against the Saints. I think they're a better team than people think. I think Gardner Minshew will take care of the ball. I like the Colts plus one at home. I'm going back to the Steelers at home plus three. I don't know why anyone keeps doubting the team's getting better every single week and they're getting healthier every week. Jacksonville, I completely got away with one, I feel like. At New Orleans, they're decent and they have a three days extra rest. But give me the Steelers as a home dog every day of the week plus three. And then I'm going to go back to the well with the Bengals. I mean, the line opened up this week when people thought Brock Purdy was playing. For San Francisco at five and a half, Purdy is out. Debo Samuel is still out. Cincinnati off of a bye week, uh, getting three and a half. I don't care the game in San Francisco. That's a rematch guy of a Super Bowl years and years ago. So 
Cincinnati plus three and a half, Steelers plus three, Colts plus one, three picks for the week. Boomer Esiason listens to this podcast. I know he remembers that Super Bowl. He walked off the field leading that game on the way to a Super Bowl MVP, only to watch, what was his name, the wide receiver? That John caught Taylor. The, John Taylor catch that touchdown pass to end it. We're going to end it here, but before we go, stick around because we're going to have a wonderful conversation with Rebecca Patterson. See you in a minute. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. All right, welcome back to On the Tape. We are joined by Rebecca Patterson. She is the former chief investment strategist at Bridgewater Associates here in our New York City headquarters. Guy and Danny, parts unknown. Guys, gal, welcome. So you are one of our fast money friends. We met actually in the green room. I think some of our listeners will know that you used to be in Money in Motion. This was going back, what, like 10 years ago on CNBC? Yeah, more than 10 years ago. So you and I were doing the Friday afternoon thing. Guy, you got bounced off of fast money on Fridays after doing it for all those years because they had to move the options and the currency folk in on Friday afternoons. You remember that? Of course I do. The wonkiness came on Fridays (laughs) and Rebecca was a breath of fresh share back then and she was a great voice on that show but quite frankly she's been a better voice on cnbc's fast money and when she appears which is not frequent enough i know our audience loves it dan yeah matter of fact well rebecca we appreciate you coming back to us you were with us on the podcast on april you and guy and i have been on the desk of fast money on a few occasions here and um again guy says it you make our desk a lot smarter when you're on it so let's get into it a little bit i mean back in april you know we spent some time talking about the construction of the equity markets and the direction of it. And we just had gone through that period, you know, with the, the, the regional banking crisis. And I think a lot of folks in the markets were still, you know, a little shell-shocked from that period. We just had a number of, of, of kind of name brand banks go under. And I think at least the way Guy, Danny, and myself were singing this, like, you know, that might have just been a little bit of a, a moose-bouche for some things that were to come in the financial system. You know, here we are. It's kind of interesting in a way. We're in late October here. And like the banking sector doesn't feel a whole heck of a lot better when you think about where the major money center banks are trading, where a lot of the regional banks are trading here. Can can you give us a sense of where you think we are relative to that period, relative to what we went through in March and April and into May? And and then, you know, we can broaden it out a little bit. Sure. So I think it's a great place to start. And I hate to always give the two-handed economist answer. I try to avoid it. But I think there is a little bit of that to this question. I think In some respects, we're so much better off now than we were as the bank mini crisis was starting in the spring because what we saw happen is effectively, implicitly, if not explicitly, all deposits were insured, right? We got a blanket coverage or, or promises of that if needed. And then we also saw the Fed increasing its reaction function, both in size, scope, and speed. And I think that's given investors some assurances that if something else were to happen, which could, absolutely could, it's not going to spiral out of control and become a truly systemic risk. So that's the good news. I think the bad news is that we are higher for longer. 
right? We, we just got a new GDP figure for Q3 today. Unbelievable. 4.9% annualized rate of growth, way above potential. And that strong GDP creates the risk that the Fed has to maybe hike again and definitely keep rates high for some time to ensure that that growth doesn't give us more inflation problems. And the higher for longer, I think, is going to slow down activity. It's probably going to slow down M&A. It's going to slow down IPOs, exits, et cetera, that uncertainty and those costs. And I think all of that is going to continue to be a bit of a headwind for the financial sector. We had 15 years, basically, of zero rates for the most part. And when I say zero rates, I mean, you can get securitizations done. And the economy is so financialized that, yes, we just did have a strong print in GDP. I'll give you that. But we know things are slowing. And if you think about now, everyone's able to ignore this kind of lag impact of rates because it hasn't mattered. But I think you would agree that was probably the peak number we're going to see for GDP in this cycle. And so as I look now, things are starting to malfunction, I should say. You know, deals are not getting done. We're seeing less M&A, less everything, obviously, capital markets activity. Give me your thoughts on just kind of the normalization of which these rates are on the longer end. You know, 5% 10 year has been normal long. And what that really means, because I think the Fed is underestimating that aspect of the cycle, um, even though they're starting to see it. And curious to what you think we're going to see as a result of those rates being higher. It's not just where they are now. It's the fact that they could be there for some time, certainly on the short end and potentially further out the curve as well, that even if we start getting some investors tiptoeing out the curve to pick up that higher yield, the difference between the short and the long end isn't as great anymore. So they might say, OK, I'm going to lock in that 10-year or the five-year at least. We're still not going to see it retreat all the way back down, the 10-year yield retreat all the way back down to three quickly, I don't think, given the supply we have coming now, given the term premium that's that's embedded there, and I think it could be sticky. So we're going to have higher rates for a period of time. And the longer they hang out there, the greater the risk that you're going to have companies that need to refinance, that you're going to have consumers that need to refinance. And that's when stuff's going to start breaking, whether it's in the commercial real estate sector or high yield sector or again, just consumers. We saw the figures, I think it was earlier this week, on auto delinquencies, which are up at the highest level we've seen in well over a decade. It's not homes this time, it's cars, but it's still a major purchase for consumers, and it's going to be a major struggle for them if they can't afford to pay for their car. Um, they're going to be pulling back spending on other things. Rebecca, we pay attention to a lot of the same things, but what should we be paying attention to that sort of you know, in the weeds, I know things that you watch that nobody talks about, but concern you. And conversely, if there are things out there that nobody talks about that encourages you, I'm curious as to your thoughts. It's only a concern depending on where you're invested. But if you want me to get in the weeds, I'm going to go back to money in motion here for a minute. So I started out my life, my professional life covering currency markets, and I'm a big currency nerd. And we have seen the dollar strengthen this year, partly on the back of higher interest rates that a more attractive carry on the dollar, partly on the back of U.S. growth being strong and attracting capital here. But whatever's driving the dollar, you have to think about the implications from that, right? The second and third order effects, how they're affecting overseas markets, how they're affecting other asset classes. One of the things, again, staying in the weeds for a minute, I wrote about in the Financial Times earlier this year, which I hadn't seen right away, I'm mad that I didn't catch it sooner, is that the relationship between oil prices and the dollar has changed. And you're like, yeah, who cares? Okay, so bear with me. The U.S. became a net gas, net gas exporter 2017, a crude exporter in 2019. What that means is when prices rise, as they've been doing in the last month on the back of this crisis in the Middle East, the dollar tends to benefit as the U.S.'s terms of trade improve. So it's a marginal support for the dollar. So now think about the countries around the world that are net importers of energy that might have exposure to U.S. rates and the dollar. So South Korea is probably my, my ground zero here. This is a huge energy importer. It has high inflation but a slowing economy. Its manufacturing sector is effectively in recession right now. So the central bank would like to cut rates, most likely, but they can't because the weaker Korean won, which is the opposite side of the stronger dollar, creates inflation. Higher oil prices create inflation. So they're stuck. They're trapped. And you're seeing as a result that 
people don't really want to own a lot of Korean assets right now. So I think looking around the world for those energy importers, but particularly in the emerging markets where there is some inflation pressure, Turkey would be another good one. India is another good one, although there's some different stuff going on there as well. I think this flip in the oil dollar relationship means that in periods where you have higher rates, stronger dollar, stronger oil, you now have a triple whammy for these emerging markets before you only had a double whammy. So the, the pain's worse. Now, not everyone in the world has loaded their portfolios with emerging markets this year. So maybe that pain isn't as bad as it might have been, but it's still something else that could create those concentric circles and feed back into the U.S. economy. You just flew right over Japan, went straight to South Korea. I want to focus on Japan for a second, because obviously with the yen weakening, they're a big importer, obviously, yep. of energy. I want to bring this back to kind of a combo of currency along with slash global central banks. QE experiment started there. I've been a big believer that it's going to end there in terms of this experiment gone wrong. We're seeing right now it happening before our eyes with the yen weakening through 150 and yield curve control no longer working. What are your thoughts on Japan? Not just on the energy side, obviously, they're importer there, but just what are your thoughts on Japan in general? Sure. What so it means to the markets? It, it definitely hits two out of those three criteria I just went through. Oil importer and then a weaker currency that is exacerbating inflation pressure. Now, Japan's unique in that it actually wanted some inflation pressure and is quite happy to see it. And it's also inflation that's coming alongside better growth. So it's reflation, whereas in Korea's case, you could argue it's stagflation. So reflation has been Japan's friend this year. And not surprisingly, we've seen Japan equities as a strong performer this year, one of the strongest developed markets outside the U.S., probably the strongest developed market outside the U.S. year to date. And the question is, what happens when they start unwinding it? So the Bank of Japan has a policy meeting next week, Halloween. That's kind of fun. Boo. I don't know how you say that in Japanese, but I bet it's better than boo. So the market is already discounting that they are going to take a step away from yield curve control, capping their longer term yields and maybe starting to move away from that negative interest rate world. And historically, Japan has always kind of it hit a own goal. Like every time the equity market was coming out, the economy was recovering, they'd tighten fiscal policy, they'd do something to stop it in its tracks. What's interesting this time is that the media, at least, so we'll take this with a grain of salt, is reporting that the government could announce another 5 trillion yen in additional stimulus for consumers as early as November, so a week away. And so if you have monetary tightening, but some fiscal easing to take the sting out of it, all else equal, it suggests that that move away from QE might not be as bad for Japan as it could have been. Now, I don't know if that's enough to support that stock market because a lot of the flow that's pushed that stock market higher this year has been foreign and, and mainly U.S. And so if the U.S. is slowing down and American investors are getting more nervous, historically, we tend to prefer our big, liquid, well-known U.S. defensive stocks in those periods. We don't like a lot of overseas exposure. So that's the question to me. Can you see that flow into Japan continue if the U.S. is slowing down? Can they decouple? History says probably not, but we'll see. That's a great segue here. So if investors historically like big U.S. liquid stocks, right, if you think about just the construct of, of the U.S. stock market right now and the performance, and I know that we've talked about this on Fast Money. I think we talked about it back in April when you were on. I mean, listen, you know, like if you were looking at retail, if you're looking at banks, if you're looking at industrials, if you're looking at transports, I mean, the list goes on and on and on in the U.S. stock market, it's been saying something very different than what if you just look up and see where the S&P closed on the year or the NASDAQ closed on the year. And again, we know why. These top 10 stocks, they make up you know 30% of the S&P 500. They make up 40% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100. They are a disproportionate amount of the S&P earnings this year. So let's bring it back to the U.S. You know, we're in the midst of Q3 earnings season right now. It doesn't feel particularly great. The S&P at its lows today, we're recording this Thursday afternoon, was down about 10% from its July highs or so. And that happened right during Q2 earnings period, right? So where do you think we are right now? S&P earnings expectations, I think FactSet has it up 12% in 2024 with mid-single-digit revenue growth. Um, we know that there's lots of margin pressure here. That 12% number seems like a pipe dream. So talk to us a little bit about where you'd be looking in the U.S. equity market and what your maybe your outlook is for the next six months or so. Well, it would be much more um, dramatic and exciting of a conversation if I completely disagreed with you. But for better or worse, I largely agree with you. So we're both going to be right or wrong. I look at that roughly 12% consensus estimate for earnings growth next year, and I think, wow, a lot of stars have to align 
for that to be met. I mean, you basically do need to have that Fed soft landing where the unemployment rate doesn't move much above 3.8%, which is roughly where we are now, and inflation comes down in this beautiful fashion. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. But to me, it, it, it seems like the risk is very skewed to the downside, that inflation comes down but comes down slowly because of service sector wages that the consumer could slow down at the same time. But if inflation doesn't come down with it quickly, the Fed still can't ease as much as is already discounted in the market. So where is that consumer strength? Where is that spending going to come from next year unless you get that perfect soft landing? So I think the risk is that the earnings expectations are not met, that discount rates are somewhat higher for longer, and you break it down to the sectors, right? So where do you want to hide? If that's what we're seeing over the next six months unfolding, do you want to be in defensive? The PEs are low, so that's that's a good start. Do you want to be in tech because rates are coming down and that headwind is being reduced potentially on, you know, on the 10-year yield? I would imagine it's coming down at that point. But tech also has a big cyclical component, right? At the end of the day, you need consumers to buy their new watches and phones. So I do like... Ha- Having some bonds, I would be tiptoeing into five-year, 10-year bonds at this point. I would be adding into some defensives. They have done better over the last month. I haven't done enough digging on it, so you all might have strong opinions here, and I'd love to hear them. One sector that I've been looking at all year, and I I wish I'd written something up about it earlier because now I feel like I'm late, but defense stocks within the industrials. Everything we're seeing around the world suggests that we are going to get more defense spending, not just in the U.S., but globally. And so you're going to have a source of revenue for these companies that is sticky. It's bipartisan. How often does that happen? And so that might be a place to hide because it's not depending on cyclical strength. It's depending on government fear. So about a year ago, the stock market was in the throes of this pretty nasty sell-off, right? And it bottomed in and around October. It's funny, at the time, you know, we were thinking a lot about what a trough multiple is for the S&P 500 versus potentially discounting trough earnings at some point, you know, in 2023, right? Well, we never got the recession. We did have an earnings recession. But if you were to break out those top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 and you looked at the bottom, let's call it 480 or so, lots of them were trading at a historical trough multiple for the S&P 500, I think low teens or so. Here we are now, and and based on everything we just talked about, and you said you want to kind of dip your toe in the water of some of these defensives, and they've been, you know, a lot of them have been absolutely battered trading at multiples that we haven't seen in a very long time. How are you thinking about the stock market here before the recession now, because you know yeah. the stock market a year ago was pricing the fact that we would have either been coming out of a recession right now or, or, or the like. We haven't had it. Paul Tudor Jones said, I think on CNBC just a few weeks ago, he expects us to be in a recession at some point in Q1 or so. So how does that play out? We're much higher than we were. I think the S&P got down to about 3,600. And here we are. We're at 4,165 as we're recording right now. Equities usually, I think everyone listening to us today and seeing this knows this, equities fall into the recession. We don't wait wait till the recession to expect stocks to fall. So as we see growth surprises start coming in on the downside, right? When you see the economic data stop surprising on the upside, but coming in a little lower, especially on consumer variables, I think you're going to see more of that uh, move from the cyclical stocks. We've already seen it in September. I think it'll continue into defensives. And then I think the magic trick here is knowing when you switch out of those, into some of the early cycle stocks, the small caps, the cyclicals. And I think there's going to be an opportunity. And the question is, is it Q1? Is it Q2? We need to see the Fed hikes bite. We need to see the consumer slow down. I agree with Danny earlier. We're starting to see those early signs of it. But for now, I think you hold in the defensives. The whole market's going to go down. And then you start looking to pivot, but probably not for a couple more quarters. The other thing I keep wondering about is if we go down... So the U.S. is overowned. The U.S. broadly, right? So I'm rolling up all our sectors, has a high multiple compared to overseas. Does that mean we fall more than the rest of the world or less? And less because Americans have this home bias, which tends to be exaggerated in downturns. And that is one of the big questions on my mind. Is it possible that Japan and Europe fall less just because no one owns it? In which case you want to hide out there relatively more in the next six months than you would have in the past. My gut says no. Um, mainly because those markets are less liquid. So even if there's less selling, they tend to fall faster. Um, I'd say the exception to that in my head would probably be Switzerland, just because of its sector composition and the currency. 
although it's such a small market, it's not really going to move the needle in a big way in a portfolio. Rebecca, when I was a young lad, I used to watch Rowan and Martin's Laughing, and I used to watch uh, the Johnny Carson show. I mentioned that because Tiny Tim was a frequent guest, and he sang, of course, Tiptoe Through the Tulips. And you mentioned you might start tiptoeing. Here's my question to you. What's the bull case for bonds here? Because my bull case is the market, the equity market goes pear-shaped and there's this flight to quality in the form of bonds, which makes yields go lower. A couple other things. But outside of that, given the issuance and given the demand constructs out there, it's a really hard case right now. I don't disagree with the hard case. I mean, we do have a lot of supply pressure in the market. We do have the Fed now as a net seller instead of buyer under the beautiful QE period we enjoyed for a decade or so. The banks, which were big buyers until everything went pear-shaped for them, are now out. So you don't have a lot of demand outside that. I'd say you still have some longer-term investors, the pension funds, the insurance companies. You have retail. And what's interesting is if you look at the Treasury monthly data on capital flows in and out of the U.S., you're still seeing quite a bit of foreign demand for Treasuries Coming particularly from places like Europe. And I don't know if that's a relative yield pickup story or a relative yield pickup currency hedge story, but that demand does seem to be continuing. But I do think you're right that if we see the 10-year yield going lower, it's likely to be caused by a sense that the Fed is close to done or is done and the economy is slowing. One thing that I'm watching carefully and I'm trying to figure out a better way to predict it rather than just follow it is the money that's gone into money markets this year. You know, Bank of America is using EPFR data, and they're estimating that this year we could see $1.5 into money market, yeah, with a T, Tom, this year, which would be a record. And it makes sense that the money went there, but at some point it's going to come out. And does it go back into stocks, or does it go into bonds first? Or how much does it go into both? Is it 60-40, or is it something else? And so watching that flow, when the money market funds start to move out, where do they go? If people say, I can get a better return now going out the curve, and they go back into bonds because the world is slowing, that could be a pretty big catalyst. That's a, that's a pretty big demand, source of demand. So we've been dancing around kind of gold and the stuff that you're talking about, Rebecca, should you buy defense stocks, geopolitical situation kind of points back to gold. I don't want to steal your thunder here, but I know Guy likes to quote years. In 1997, you began your career at J.P. Morgan, I believe, analyzing gold in the gold markets. And you were out early in the spring saying that you thought that gold would hit a new high over the next six months, which by the way, is probably going to happen before the end of this year. So give us an update on your thoughts on gold. We had Luke Groman on the tape a week ago talking about the mechanics of the things that you've discussed in terms of global central bank spying. Guy's been talking about it at ad nauseum. So, so have I. So give us your thoughts on gold here. First of all, I think it's important we distinguish between gold and gold stocks. So I look at gold the ETF or the metal, preferably a gold-backed ETF. Um, holding the metal is expensive. You know, if I'm right this year on gold, I'm right for horrible reasons, which is greater geopolitical uncertainty that I certainly didn't predict what would happen in the Middle East. I, I'm sad that it's happening. Gold does tend to do best when you have a deflationary recession, yields are coming down, people are looking for something liquid and safe, or in a crisis or in an overheating situation where inflation control is getting lost. So it does best at the tails, if you will. In the middle, it's um, much less consistent. It can go up or down, but it's less consistent. Gold also does well when you have jewelry demand. Jewelry is half the demand for gold, and the biggest sources of that demand are China and India. India's economy is doing okay. It's really interesting. China's economy, you know, the government just announced additional stimulus, fiscal stimulus, I believe, earlier today, yesterday. Um, they're trying desperately to stabilize things. The consumer's not buying it much yet. But it is the sort of environment where I could see Chinese consumers saying, I don't feel good in my bank deposits. I don't feel good in the property market. You could see gold demand not just coming from the central bank of China trying to diversify from treasuries, but also from the Chinese consumer buying it as a safe haven, which is an interesting spin on it, but something worth watching. The World Gold Council, it's an industry body, so it has a view, but they publish really good objective data and they put out a monthly report so you can track all those trends. So anyone watching this who isn't doing it already, that would be something I'd say keep an eye on. What is it up this year? Four or five percent? 
year to date. It's gone up and down, but it's still up for the year. But it's definitely been a diversifier. So if you're thinking about what do I put in my portfolio to improve my sharp, to improve my risk-adjusted return, it's been additive this year. Little known fact, I was a two-time speaker at the World Gold Council Dinner in New York. And I tell this anecdote, Rebecca, you'll like this. A couple of years prior to me speaking, when I was actually working in the industry, Wayne Murdy was a speaker. I know Rebecca probably remembers that name. And this crew, Wayne was so boring that they threw dinner rolls at this guy. And I was mortified. I was not one of those people. But when they asked me to do it, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to speak in front of these animals. But I chose to do it. And I started the dinner off by saying, I was in the crowd when you threw dinner rolls at Wayne Murdy. I used a few expletives, but I basically told him if they tried that with me, there would be a problem. I digress. Dysfunction in the government is always there. It's just the level of dysfunction that we need to talk about. And it seems to be extraordinarily high right now. You've done work on this. How impactful is that in terms of markets? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it matters what party you support right now. It's depressing for everyone. And and I've been wondering for a long time, how much does it matter? Because public perception of Congress in Washington goes down, down, down. And frankly, it doesn't look a lot better in many places overseas right now. And yet you don't necessarily see an immediate relationship with financial markets. So I started trying to pull it apart and say, well, what would the relationship be? Why would it be there? And, and there is data out there that you can parse. So Freedom House has some data. There's a couple other good sources. And they rank government effectiveness or functionality, if you will, on a couple different scores, bipartisanship behind legislation, corruption scores, openness for media, a, a variety of things. And you can take some or all of them. Bottom line is when you see a government becoming more dysfunctional, in many cases, you see companies spending less on CapEx. They don't have the certainty they need on policy to make longer-term investments. You see relatively less hiring. You see less foreign direct investment into the economy. And all those things trickle down into earnings expectations and economic growth. And so you do see those equity markets tend to underperform countries where government effectiveness is stable or improving. Those countries also tend to see sovereign credit rating downgrades. Now, the problem with this is there's a but. And the but is that a leader of a dysfunctional country can overwhelm the dysfunction by doing monetary or fiscal stimulus. I say monetary in countries where it's not as... Um, independent. And so you could have a dysfunctional leader and he or she comes in and says, I'm going to have major tax cuts. And so despite the dysfunction, the equity market can like that and go up. But generally speaking, there is a relationship. It does matter. You will see less FDI. You will see less CapEx, less investment in your economy, and that will trickle through. So I'm watching it. I care. All right, let's pivot to energy here a little bit, because when I think about just performance in the S&P 500, we just talked about the outperformance that we've seen in tech and consumer discretionary, which is largely tech. If you think of the components of that, right, it's Amazon and Tesla make up a disproportionate amount of that XLY. And then after that, you get to the XLE, okay? And we've seen two, Danny and Guy have been talking about this, two massive deals. So if the XLE, the Energy Select ETF, 40% of that is Exxon and Chevron, they both announced what, guys, $50 billion um, you know, proposed acquisitions um, in the space here. And, and the group's basically unchanged on the year. Help us think about commodities and this geopolitical framework, and then also how you're thinking about the energy sector from an equity standpoint. When I started at JP Morgan way back when, I was responsible for helping a forecast currencies and precious metals. Later in my career there, it was great timing, 08, 09, I ran a currency and commodity trading desk, including energy and ag. And so trial by fire learning, but it was it was a great, great education. Unfortunately, we did well for our clients. But what I would say right now with energy, and let's focus on crude for a minute because that's the most liquid space and we're talking about oil producers generally here. Demand in China should be stabilizing or picking up with all the stimulus feeding through. Demand in the U.S. is likely to moderate somewhat as the economy slows going into next year. The big question in my mind is going to be supply. It's going to be, do we see supply inhibited in the Middle East because of this conflict, 
either supply routes, Suez Canal, or actual producers like Iran affected. So that's the big question to me. What happens with supply? And I think we're already seeing a bit of a premium in the oil price since the conflict in Israel and Palestine started and the Middle East started. Oil prices are up a couple of dollars a barrel on the back of that. And I think they could rise further if the conflict widens and supply disruptions increase. Barring that, I think we're looking at a slightly slower global demand picture next year unless OPEC fights it. And they have been, right? OPEC's been cutting supply more than expected this year, led by Saudi Arabia to support prices to meet the their fiscal needs, they need a certain amount of revenue, they could keep fighting it. So I think when we look at downside for oil in the next six to 12 months, there's not a lot of downside because even if the U.S. and Europe slow, China's struggling to support the economy at a certain level, and that is an important driver of the demand. And on the supply, even if the conflict in the Middle East doesn't get worse, and hopefully it doesn't, the Saudis are going to limit the downside. Upside is going to be supply-driven. So we're in a range with upside risk, in my mind. What does that mean for oil stocks? That's a very different animal in the United States, and it's super interesting because it's going to be a function of banks, which a lot of the independent smaller producers in the U.S. rely on regional and smaller banks, and those banks aren't lending. And all of the banks are taking a harder look at lending to higher-carbon energy producers, and the producers that can get those loans tend to be the ones that are big enough to also have money in renewables. And so the big oil firms get the loans. The little guys don't. They're producing as much as they can right now, but they're not investing for future production. And so where does that leave me? The little guys are going to get eaten up. I think this M&A consolidation wave is going to continue and you're going to see more purchases of smaller firms because they don't see a future beyond the immediate production that they have right now. Bringing it back to the macro real quick, and I'll include energy within the macro, is the leverage that's in the system. As I mentioned before, rates were so low for so long, funds can leverage. You worked at a large fund. I'm not going to ask you to comment on the leverage in that fund per se, but we're seeing it in fixed income, you know, quote, risk-free assets that have been levered that are exacerbating these moves. What are you seeing kind of, or what, what's your sense of leverage in the system in general? And, you know, the thought of, quote, something breaking because of what the Fed has been doing. It feels like it's in a many different pockets. What are your thoughts on that in general? My biggest fear for what could break, and it ties to leverage, but it's not only leverage, is the parts of the system we can't see well. So if you go back 10 years and then you fast forward to today, we have seen a huge amount of growth in what they call the non-bank financial sector. And that includes hedge funds. It includes private equity, private credit, et cetera, et cetera. Family offices. We saw a couple blowups last year there. And these companies don't have the same regulatory frameworks. They don't have the same data they're required to produce in a timely way. And so what scares me is that we don't know what we don't know. We don't know exactly how much leverage they have in a timely way. We don't know how crowded those trades are. And even if the regulators are compelling them to release more data or trying to right now, it's not giving us short-term position data, the sort of data that would help us avoid a blow up. And so when I think about where is leverage and what could blow up over the next six to 12 months, I think you forget about the banks. The big banks are well capitalized. We could see a small bank hit, but we're not going to see a big bank hit. I think it's going to be in the non-bank, the shadow banking system, if you will, if we have one. And it is going to be a surprise. That's that's the part that kind of stinks. We can't see it coming. There's no data available because they don't have to share it. One last thing, and this is actually on the non-banking financial sector. It was announced this week, very sadly, that Byron Wien, a longtime strategist at Morgan Stanley, and obviously I think he was vice chairman at Blackstone for the last 14 years, passed at the age of 90. And you know, last month I, I was at a dinner with him, a sort of off the record, a bunch of market folks, financial media folks, some investor types and stuff. And you know, it was interesting. He, he was really sharp at 90 years old. I was sitting right across from him, and you know, we went around the room. There's probably like 18 people in there and everyone kind of gave something they're optimistic about as it relates to markets or geopolitics and one thing they were kind of nervous about. And, I, and I'm sure this will be written about. I know he's been talking about this, but he was very concerned about the U.S. deficit and, and to a degree where he, he almost felt like this is going to be the end of us, like, like the end of this experiment a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that a concern? It's not something, I mean, listen, we're right up on this debt ceiling thing again or the government funding. It's the same crap. I mean, it's all wrapped up in one and it feels like, you know, we get to November 17th, they're going to just kick the can down the road, right? Like, so we get it. And so when a guy like him, who's been on the street for 60 years, you know what I mean? This is one of his last 
things that he has to say about the whole thing that he's presided over and advised clients and trillions and trillions of dollars of assets have been deployed based on some stuff that he and his firms have had to say over the last 60 years or so. How do you think about that? Is this something that the powers that be need to be focused on right now? Because it seems like at least some people in Washington are willing to let things go awry if they can't get this under control. I absolutely lose sleep over this. I think we're in a fiscal no man's land when it comes to policymaking. You know, the Democrats would like to spend more, especially on infrastructure and on social programs, education, etc. The Republicans don't agree on most, not all, but most of that. The Republicans would like to cut taxes. The Democrats don't agree on that. Neither party will even utter out loud entitlement reform, God help us. And so even if the Republicans cut spending, they're cutting it on this teeny part of the total pie. It doesn't move the needle on our deficit or debt. So it's smoke and mirrors. So I don't see enough area for agreement or enough agreement that this is a problem that anything's going to happen in the short term. So I feel like fiscal policy is stuck. They're not going to move towards fixing anything. What I worry about is the next recession we have, if it's a big one, it's going to be harder to do a pandemic-type fiscal response because we're going to be starting with deficit and debt levels so much higher already. And then that's short term. But let's think about the next 10 years. The Congressional Budget Office is suggesting that our debt-GDP ratio, not in 10 years, but let's say over the next 20, 25 years, is going to be getting close to 115 percent of GDP. We're going to start looking like Italy, Greece, Japan, you know, yeah. And yes, we can print money and print our way out of it. And that's going to be very inflationary and devalue the dollar. So I, I'm dubious that that would be the path. But over that time, if our relationship with China remains as it is today, they're going to continue diversifying slowly so they don't rock their market in their own holdings. So we're not going to have that cushion of foreign demand for our bonds that we're going to increasingly need. And so interest rate costs just go up further. Borrowing costs go up further. And that's going to potentially undermine the economy. That's a dark picture. I don't think it is a fait accompli at all, but we do need to see policymakers coming together to address this in a bipartisan way. And it's hard to see that anytime soon. I'm still holding out hope. You read the media, you feel like everyone in Congress is horrible. And obviously that's so not true. I think the vast majority of our members of Congress want to do the right thing for this country. And when you meet them one-on-one in different venues, you're reminded of that. There's a lot of smart people there who want to do the right thing. I think what we have to do is get the extremes on both sides of the aisle under control. And I don't know how that happens. You mentioned that politicians want to disagree. Dave Mason, the great singer-songwriter in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, his famous song, We Just Disagree. But I think we can all agree, Rebecca, that we're better for having you join us here on the tape. So thank you very much. Oh, my gosh. Well, flattery will get you everywhere. (laughs) I'm happy to be on. And um, it's always a pleasure talking with you guys. I learn a ton from you. So thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.